0: You're listening to Stream of Conscience, Beckett's Religious Liberty Podcast. I'm Katie Geary. And I'm Angela Wu Howard. This episode is a special in honor of the one year anniversary of one of Beckett's Supreme Court cases Fulton v. City of Philadelphia.
1: The question was whether the City of Philadelphia could cut off their partnership with a Catholic foster agency because the city disagreed with Catholic beliefs about marriage.
0: We won the case unanimously. That it was a 9-0 win was surprising and led some to say it must be a narrow, limited decision. So was it? A year later, we're here to answer that question among others. As with all our cases, there's so much to the story that doesn't end up in the final briefs. We're here to tell that story. In March 2018, Jim Amato, Secretary of Catholic Human Services, got a phone call from the Commissioner of the Philadelphia Department of Human Services, or DHS. An article had just come out in the Philadelphia Inquirer. The article reported that certain Christian foster agencies in Philadelphia, including Catholic Social Services, would not place children with same-sex couples. Now, the Philadelphia DHS Commissioner wanted Jim to confirm Did Catholic Social Services, the foster agency that he had a part in running, place children with same-sex couples?
2: And I said, no. She said, then you discriminate. I said, no, I follow the teachings of the Catholic Church.
1: Okay, let's back up. If you're asking yourself, why is a Catholic organization involved in something the state is supposed to be doing, then you might be
0: surprised to discover the reality of how the foster care system works. Like many cities across America, Philadelphia relies on private foster and adoption agencies to screen, train, and license foster parents. Private agencies, like Catholic Social Services, then go on to provide ongoing 24-7 support to these families, forming relationships that can last years. Jim Amato's colleague, Jim Black, explained how the process works.
3: So the way that kids and families come to the attention of the department of human services in philadelphia is usually because of a call someone notices something somebody has a suspicion or there's a concern about a child and a call is made to dhs and then an investigation takes place if that child and family are accepted into the system then dhs has a number of contractors private providers that provide the the foster care and so these providers have a number of homes. They're licensed by the state. And um, when DHS has a child or children that they need to place, they look at their list of foster care providers and they make a call and say, can you take this child? Here are the details on this child. And then the child will come into that, into that home if, we, if there's a home available.
1: The city handles the ultimate home placement of a child. And the family who fosters that child has been licensed by the
0: state. But only after having been screened by a private agency, like Catholic Social Services, which has been involved in foster care screening, licensing, and support for centuries.
3: The application asks for lots of details about the family, who's in the home, asks about the home, uh, the background of all those folks. um, And then there are visits to the home over a period of time, not only check out the home, but to continue to check out the home, make sure there's consistency, it's a safe place, a good environment for for children. There's also uh, quite a bit of training that uh, folks in the home have to go through.
0: Throughout history, many of the private agencies have been faith-based, and we'll hear about why in a moment when we talk to the Archbishop of Philadelphia. But at the end of the day, it's a crucial and mutual partnership between the city and a private agency. One can't do its job without the other. The phone call that DHS made to Jim Amato asking him whether Catholic Social Services would place a child with a same-sex couple was the first sign of a crack in that partnership. After the phone call, DHS asked for an in-person meeting. Jim Black, Jim Amato, and in-house counsel Suzanne Houston walked over to the offices of DHS just a few blocks away from the archdiocese.
3: You know, I remember that day fairly vividly. We were really summoned over there uh, and asked to explain our position on same-sex couples when it came to our foster care program. And um, Jim did a, just a terrific job of, of really very clearly articulating what our position was, what our practice was.
2: There were 28 foster care agencies in the city of Philadelphia, if uh, at some point uh, we found out in the course of our home study, you either told us straight up that you were uh, in a same-sex relationship, uh, then, then we, would, we would refer you to 27 other agencies who that would not have been an issue. They would have pursued it with the home study.
1: No one had ever complained of being turned away. As Jim Amato put it, there were 27 other agencies that support same-sex couples who wanted to
0: foster. But the city of Philadelphia was adamant that Catholic social services needed to change their policy on same-sex couples.
3: We were told that our position uh, wasn't acceptable, that this wasn't a hundred years ago, that we needed to kind of get with the times, and, um, you know, reference was made to Pope Francis and we need to follow, you know, more closely what Pope Francis was teaching. <music>
0: No decision was made during the meeting. But Jim Amato told us that after they left the room, went down the elevator, and stepped out onto the street, they got the phone call. The city was closing their intake. That meant shutting off referrals for foster care.
3: If you close intake, you're you're essentially killing off the program. It will wither on the vine and eventually just die. You know, this was something that was important to us from a faith based perspective to provide this kind of care to to these kids. And here we had a government agency telling us that you know, they weren't going to allow us to participate in that any longer because of our firmly held religious beliefs.
1: And this was all happening in the context of a foster care crisis in Philadelphia. Just weeks before, the city had put out a call for more than 300 new foster families. And now they were shutting off access to families who were ready and willing to take in children.
0: It was especially unfortunate considering the long history Catholic social services had in serving at-risk youth in the city.
4: Here in the Church of Philadelphia for over 200 years, the people, the Church of Philadelphia has been serving those in need. And as we sit here right now, it's happening.
0: That's Archbishop Perez, Archbishop of Philadelphia, When this case began, Archbishop Chaput was the archbishop, but Archbishop Perez was instated in the middle of the case. He told us more about the Catholic Church's commitment to serving those in need and what that looks like in Philadelphia.
4: There is a part of Christianity that is not only rooted in following the the values of the gospel, but also living them and part of living them has to deal with, you know, I was hungry, and you gave me to eat, and I was thirsty, and you gave me water. I was sad, and you consoled me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And it's Matthew 25. I'm not necessarily going to be judged on how many novenas I've done. I'm going to be judged ultimately on charity. So the service of the church to the most vulnerable has been part uh, and parcel of being Christian. And Christians don't do it just because... We're nice guys, right? It's, it's not volunteerism. It is not philanthropy. It is, not, it is rooted directly in discipleship, in being a Christian, a, a follower of the teachings of Christ. They're, they're part of it. You can't divorce it from it. So then, yeah, so the church responds really from the get-go in, you know, in the first century that we have to take care of the, of the widows and the orphans. And through over 2,000 years of, of lived history now, the church has always asked the question, who are the widows and the orphans of our time? And so when you go to any diocese or archdiocese, right, a major component of the church's mission is actually to serve the most vulnerable.
1: Catholic social services didn't just have a long history of serving the vulnerable. They were good at it. They weren't the biggest foster care agency in the city. They only had a fraction of the foster families in Philadelphia. But that close-knit aspect is what made them excellent. Parents who worked with them knew they could rely on them.
5: So my name is Tony Sims, and I have two little boys. Caleb just turned four, and Josiah will be six in March Um, and I adopted them through Catholic Social Services. Um, I went to Catholic Social Services to, you know, sign up to become a foster parent, and I chose them out of all the other agencies, number one, um, being Catholic, number two, having a personal relationship with the workers there. Like, I had known them through, through work and known them personally, and I just felt really comfortable, and I knew that the work that they were doing was significant.
0: That Tony chose Catholic Social Services spoke to the quality of the organization because Tony had considerable experience with the foster care system.
1: Before becoming a foster parent, Tony's career was in social work. With a major in forensic psychology, Tony first worked for a foster care agency and then in a facility for delinquent youths. But the position she loved the most was with the Defender Association, a legal advocacy group for children and families.
5: You know, these kids who are vulnerable and who have been taken uh, out of their homes and who've been abused and neglected, and um, that's where I felt the most needed. Maybe that's my way of allowing children to be heard, advocating for them and fighting for them and speaking up for them, that they have a voice. You know, that was my biggest pleasure in being a child advocate at the Defender Association, like, I gave kids voices. I spoke with them directly. I made reports to the attorneys. Sometimes I was called upon to speak for them in court. And it was empowering to to do that, not for me, but for them, because a lot of times they don't get to go to court and say their piece of what happened. And because kids are emotional and the kids, kids want to go home and kids want to love their parents and they don't, they don't understand why they were pulled out of situations or why they have to leave one foster home over another. And sometimes it's as stupid as like the foster parent and the, the foster care agency don't get along, you know, and they don't, they don't understand that.
1: After she left her career and became a foster parent, Tony realized the system felt different from the point of view of a parent.
5: It was difficult as a foster parent because I lost some of that control that I had as a worker. I could kind of manage the system better because I worked in the system, but it's very different when you're a foster parent and you have to comply, be submissive a lot of times, not say a lot of things, and I'm not that person. And so I butt heads with a lot of people along the way. Um, But I did it not because I'm just stubborn and I just want to do what I want to do. I did it because I still had that worker mentality and I did it for my boys. Like, nobody was ever going to treat my boys like foster kids. Nobody was ever going to treat my boys like they didn't matter.
0: When things got difficult for Tony and her boys, she knew she could call on Catholic Social Services to support her. Just like
5: I was the foster kids' advocate, they were my advocate. And as foster parents, you need that support, you need that advocacy, you need to know that somebody is there for you if there's a problem, or if you have a question or concern, or you just want to vent. Um, Because friends and family, they don't really get it unless they're going through it. It's a completely different entity, being a foster parent and working in foster care. It's nothing, it's not like anything that anybody could understand unless they went through it.
1: Tony's experience with Catholic Social Services wasn't unique. Other parents who worked with them spoke of their high level of responsiveness, attention, and commitment to the families they served.
0: One of these parents is Sharon L. Fulton, a mother and grandmother who has fostered 40 children over the years and whose name would end up on this case.
6: I enjoyed what I was doing. It gave me meaning to my life. It was not easy to be a foster parent. But it's just something you want to do, if you want to do it. It was a dedicated thing. The ones that couldn't stand it, didn't stand it. And the ones that intended to follow it through, like myself and Cecilia Paul, we did it. We stayed there. For Sharonell, serving
1: those most in need was in her blood.
6: My grandmother was a a seamstress. Um, She made clothes for people. That's how she made a living. And she would serve the homeless men. And these men, there was five of them, would come and gather in front of my grandmother's door. And she would throw a white cloth on the wood. And they would sit there and eat. They was just happy to be served and be accepted is the word I'm looking for. And that's when it started with me, watching my grandmother, who I lived with, feed others less fortunate than we were.
1: Many of the children placed in Sharonel's care over the years had traumatic pasts and needed medical care.
6: Because I worked for hospice, and I had a background in nursing, working with uh, children, people that were dying, people that was uh, trying to commit suicide. I think they put that together, and they knew what they was doing, because I didn't see it coming. And I wondered why they always gave me the children that were on the edge. Always.
0: From the very beginning, Sharonel's experience as a foster parent was difficult.
6: Well, the first fostering experience that I had, I had had a dream. And in the dream, I was riding down the street and I looked in the mirror and there was uh, two kids in the back. And I thought, how did you get in here? But I had a dream that I was going to get two children. And when Arlene Mullins called me to say, "Miss Fulton, we have children for you. And I said, yes, I know. I saw it in my dream. And I'm ready.
0: Sharonell received two brothers, Wayne and Sean, into her home. The boys had severe third-degree burns on their faces and arms. Sharonel told us that they had been burned as their father and his girlfriend were arguing while boiling water for noodles. Their father said he never intended for the boys to get hurt, but somehow during their dispute they were badly burned by the boiling water.
6: Wayne accepted me, didn't mind getting in the bed and fluffing the pillows up and talking to me, but Sean was distant. And he was the one with the worst burns. Uh, he didn't trust, and he it was a long time before he could trust me. but. He came around, he's still coming around.
0: Sharonell recounted to us a time when Wayne took her wedding ring and sold it to a boy at school. Sharonell never got the ring back. Another time, Sharonel received a beautiful bedroom set from a man whose wife she'd cared for before her death.
6: And I was very proud to have it because I know how much it meant to him and his wife. Wayne took a nail and went in that room, which was my guest room. He had no business being in there, and carved his ABCs in the top. And when I saw that, I wanted to cry because it was the most expensive uh, pit room set I had. And I was, I treasured it. It seemed like everything that I treasured, he messed up. And uh, I never got it fixed, it's still upstairs.
1: These weren't easy moments for Charonel, but she had a gift for understanding the kids, for seeing their dignity and how much they deserve to heal and to be loved.
6: They came from families with a lot of felonies. They didn't learn to be loved. Like Wayne would always say to me, I have no baby pictures. I have nothing to look back for a baby. He constantly talks, even now he's 30, he's 35, he talks about not having any baby pictures, not having anything to touch base with as a baby. Bothers him.
1: A lot of fostering was walking children through trauma. One child had to be committed to a psychiatric facility after physically threatening a teacher. And at one point, Sharonel cared for siblings taken from the home after their younger sibling died from starvation.
6: They called me and they said, I heard it in the news, that the child had starved to death and that uh, Christmas Eve, they came here to the door with four children. They knew that I had a house big enough to accept four children. That was one of the factors. And that I cook. They knew that they wouldn't starve here because we eat and we cook.
0: DHS brought the children, but nothing else. No money, no gifts. Sharonel couldn't provide much for them beyond a loving home. But Catholic Social Services stepped in.
6: And the Sisters of St. Joseph and Catholic Social Service came out with gift cards uh, for Target Uh, food, different things. That's what you call support. And that is what, in my opinion, you need when you're on that route. You need support, not criticism, not saying when she only went to high school. You need support. And that's what I felt I got.
1: Support is so critical when you're a foster parent. Whether it was with Wayne and Sean, the four siblings on Christmas Eve, for the other dozens of children who came into Sharonel's care over the years, she knew she could count on her
6: agency. No matter how bad it got, I could make a call and get help. Anytime.
0: I wish we could include all the stories Sharonel and Tony told. They've done some truly heroic work fostering children in Philadelphia. But this gives enough of a glimpse at the experience of foster parents to highlight what was at stake with the city's decision to cut off
5: referrals to Catholic social services. You have one less agency to send them to. Like, that was just insane to me. Like, work this out without having to take this away from the kids.
1: And shutting down a foster agency was not going to help kids.
5: The city's stance appeared
0: to be ideological more than anything else.
3: For a government official to tell you, or maybe not even appreciate, that in order for you to continue to participate in the market square, that you must ignore or compromise your strongly held religious beliefs,
2: that to me is a very dangerous concept. At the beginning, I was just, you know, kind of awestruck by how quickly this happened and how, how quickly they just kind of threw us to the curb and the families that we served to the curb because of uh, uh, this particular issue. So there was a little bit of shell-shock there. At the same time as being shell-shocked, uh, there was, there was uh, you know, we are Philadelphians. We do like a little bit of a fight.
1: Archbishop Shapu called together the leaders of the diocese and posed the question, should they fold? Or fight.
2: Well, first and foremost, I admire the courage and respect the courage of Archbishop Chapu at the time, who uh, called us into a meeting with his fellow bishops, and uh, he had watched uh, things around the country. He'd watched Chicago lose Chicago Catholic Charities lose its foster care program. I think Boston lost their foster care program. And just saw this series of tumbling dominoes, and uh, you know, asked if we if if we wanted to. Uh, fight this? And we said, yes.
0: What the Archbishop and his council realized was that this was a much bigger issue than foster care.
4: Archbishop Chaput was very uh, bold, right? And a great leader in saying, uh, no, this violates the very essence of us being able to live the gospel. It wasn't just about foster care, it was about religious liberty. There's a deeper issue under that, right? Because the implications of this case didn't just involve the Catholic Church, it actually involved people of all faith because that question was uh, really the deeper question, the deeper philosophical question, constitutional question, is do we have, do we actually have the freedom to live our faith and and the implications of the faith.
0: The decision was made. They would take a stand. And that's when Beckett came into the picture.
7: I was in Philadelphia for an argument, actually for the Little Sisters of the Poor.
0: That's Lori Wyndham, senior counsel at Beckett, the lawyer who would ultimately argue this case at the Supreme Court.
7: It was right about the time all this was happening, and so we went and met with Catholic Social Services right after that argument to talk to them about what was going on and what was going to happen next.
0: The Archdiocese of Philadelphia had to choose a law firm to represent them. Beckett had been following the issues at hand for many years. In several cities across the country, we had seen faith-based agencies challenged for similar reasons, and the agencies had closed. In fact, Beckett was already involved in another foster agency case in Michigan, where the ACLU was challenging the state's ability to work with religious agencies.
1: While the Michigan case was ongoing, the case in Philadelphia was moving fast, and it was a clear religious liberty violation.
0: But why? You may be wondering, why couldn't the city simply make this decision? Wasn't it within their right?
7: Our constitution recognizes that we are a diverse nation with a lot of different religious beliefs, and we should allow people to practice their different beliefs and be able to live and work together. And I think that's the kind of bottom baseline way to understand our legal guarantees. And so one of the things that our free exercise clause does. Is it says, well, you can't discriminate against religion. You can't go around and say, hey, I don't like your beliefs. I'm going to try and penalize you. And if you're going to apply the law to a religious group, you need to apply the law that you're applying to everybody else. You can't make a special policy just for them. You need to treat them fairly. And so part of the problem in Philadelphia was that they didn't actually have a policy written down anywhere that said, you must provide home studies for same-sex couples. Um, They adopted this shoot first, ask questions later approach. And they said, well, you obviously must have done something wrong. And so we're going to penalize you. And then they had to kind of let the lawyers scramble around to figure out what law they had broken. Uh, And the reality is they hadn't broken any law.
0: So there actually wasn't anything on the books in Philadelphia that Catholic social services had violated. Which meant, first of all, that the abrupt closing of their intake was not founded on anything concrete. And second of all, that the case was a little more complicated for the Beckett lawyers to navigate.
7: Because usually you say, okay, here's the law, here's how it impacts me, and here's why that's a problem. Instead, you're having to say, well, there's no law, but here, 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 and here are problems. And courts, we need you to help us sort this out.
1: Something else of note in the case was that Catholic Social Services had been providing foster care services for longer than the city itself.
7: Catholic Social Services was doing this work before the city of Philadelphia was. And now the city of Philadelphia says, well, you can only do this work if you enter into a contract with us, otherwise you're excluded. Um, The other problem was, and this kind of gets back to Philadelphia continuing to to change its tune on, on what the law was. The city ordinance Philadelphia was pointing to was a public accommodations ordinance. So this is the kind of law that covers, like, coffee shops and hotel rooms and trains. And they said, well, you can't discriminate in a public accommodation. Well, foster care home studies are not a public accommodation.
0: For example, places of public accommodation, like your neighborhood Starbucks or the hotel down the street, they don't conduct psychological evaluations or family interviews before they serve you. So Beckett took the case, representing not only Catholic social services, but foster parents who were supported by them, including Sharon L. Fulton, who answered the call when the agency director asked her to step up. He called
6: and he said, Mrs. Fulton, we need someone to say something about their child care, their foster care life, and we wondered if you would do it. And that's what he said to me,
0: and I I said, sure, I'll do it. It was essential that the case involved foster parents who could speak to the support they'd gotten from Catholic Social Services. They also proved to be a source of inspiration for many. Sharon L.
7: If you talked to her, you probably heard her say, I have room in my heart, I have room in my home. Tony. Tony Simsbush is an amazing mom. She wanted to do the hard thing of, of becoming a mom and adopting kids
0: through the foster care system. And Cecilia Paul, who had fostered 133 children over the course of 40 years. Cecilia sadly passed away a few months into the case. She said having the babies in her home was like her cup of coffee.
7: It got her up in the morning. She'd been named a Foster Parent of the Year by the city of Philadelphia for her work. Um, And she actually specialized in caring for infants who'd been born into um, drug abuse because that was something that she had learned in her training as a pediatric nurse. And she said it was the first time that she could remember that her home was empty and she wasn't having any more children placed with her.
1: With these inspiring women in mind, Beckett's first step was a hearing in district court.
7: So we went to Philadelphia to have a hearing. And we thought it was just going to be an argument. You know, usually you file for a preliminary injunction. You go, you have an argument. The judge rules pretty quickly. We knew somebody might try and call a witness, so we'd been talking to our clients about that. But we got there in the afternoon, and the judge said she was going to take evidence. And so we thought we were there for like an hour-long argument, and we ended
1: up having a three-day trial. This was a surprise, to say the least. The lawyers didn't even have anything with them for an overnight stay and certainly hadn't anticipated a three-day trial then and there. But Lori didn't miss a beat, something Sharonell
6: remembered. Lori had her hair whipped on the side. I like that. <laughs> I, I, that shows strength, you know. I thought to myself, this girl has got it. She's got the power. And uh, I was shaking and feeling like crying. And she was the one that was badgering, and they was coming back, and she had an answer for everything they threw at her. That takes, that takes something. You got to just... Not only believe, you got to be prepared.
7: Nobody had expected that this is what's going to happen. So, you know, gave my opening argument and then we started putting people on the bench. And, you know, as a lawyer, usually you have months and months, sometimes years of discovery where you go and you have depositions and you get documents and you go back and forth. And so when you go into a trial, you know what to expect. You know what you're going to be asking people about. You have a pretty good idea what they're going to say and they've seen all the documents before. We walked into this hearing, and suddenly people are going up on the stand and we're asking them questions that we don't know the answers to, Um, which is something they tell you to never ever do in a trial. But we're learning things as we go that were pretty surprising. And so we were in Philadelphia for three days and we had three days worth of hearings.
1: A few weeks later, they got the decision. The district court had ruled against us. This was in July, 2018, just a few months after everything started.
0: This wasn't entirely unexpected, but it was still disappointing, especially to the people at Catholic Social Services and their foster families. There was a lot of fear in the beginning of this case that the city would remove kids from families supported by Catholic Social Services. It was at this time that the city decided not to do that. Catholic Social Services and the city had an agreement
7: where... They would not take the kids out of the homes they were in. So they were not going to go and, and take kids away from foster parents or pre-adoptive parents. They'd let them stay there, but they also would not let any more kids be placed with Catholic Social Services. And it was, you know, it was a wind-down agreement. That's what um, that's what people were calling it. It was acknowledging that we're going to kind of just wind this down and wait till all those kids are out of care and then then you're done.
1: The disappointing district court decision had a tangible effect almost immediately.
2: We began to lose foster parents because we didn't have children to place with them. In many cases, that wasn't attrition where they went to another agency. I think it was they just stopped fostering. So they lost a resource, and they lost an agency who had deep roots and deep commitments uh, to serving children that way, in, in foster care, rather.
0: The agency also had to let staff go, something that was very painful on many levels.
3: I think it was very hard on people because, again, the people that work in our programs aren't doing it for the buck. They're not driving around in fancy cars. They're not making a fortune doing this work. They're doing it because it's a mission for them. It's vocation. And so when it's taken away, that that hurts on a personal level.
6: It was very difficult. I've seen good foster parents that I know for sure not having any children, uh, suffering the consequences of the city's decision to shut down the foster care department. I've seen good social workers that I know for sure that had been out there for 20 and 25 years not having a job, walking away, sad. I've seen the consequences of this lawsuit on the people that I consider to be family.
1: Earlier, we mentioned that when Philadelphia shut down Catholic Social Service's ability to place children, The city was in the middle of a foster care crisis. This was still true, and not only limited to Philadelphia. Nationwide numbers on foster care are hard to come by, but most relevant organizations report an upward trend of children entering the foster care system, closely linked to the growing opioid crisis. At the same time, there are simply not enough homes for these kids.
0: By some accounts, between 30 and 50 percent of foster families step down from fostering each year. If there aren't enough families for the children in the system, then they end up going to group homes or even detention centers. So you kind of have to stop and ask here, why was the city of Philadelphia so adamant about closing Catholic social services? What was this going to accomplish exactly? Especially as they continued to
1: work with and trust Catholic charities in other areas, Jim Black was still running several other Catholic charities in partnership with the city partnering with the same individuals, in fact, whom they were going up against in court over the foster care issue.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the interesting things about this is, uh, you know, we contract with the city for many more things, uh, you know, in addition to foster care. So there's a lot of concern about what this would do to our relationship and our contracts in the other areas as well. From my perspective, uh, throughout the process, DHS did a very good job of compartmentalizing not letting what was happening in foster care uh, kind of bleed into our relationships and the other programs that we were running. I I give them a lot of credit for that. I have a lot of uh, respect and admiration for a lot of the leadership over there at DHS. I mean, these are people that we work side-by-side with for many years, and so we have relationships with them. These are not bad people, right? Um, These are our partners in providing these services
1: The city had no problem working with Catholic charities when it came to areas separate from foster care, and I think this highlights just how much of an ideological battle this was. This was a situation where everyone knew Catholic charities and foster moms like Sharon L. Fulton were doing a superior job serving the public, and there wasn't even a same-sex couple wanting to foster or adopt that didn't have an agency to advocate for them. What was on trial was whether the Catholic Church could live by its beliefs on marriage, and still participate in
4: public service. From the Catholic's perspective, what is marriage about? It's about unity of two human beings that live and love each other in such a way that the world kind of peeking in on them could get a glimpse of how God loves us. There's that unitive aspect of it. And then the other aspect is that it is procreative, right? That we participate in in the very creative act of God, which He chooses to share with us in bringing about life, and then rooted in that is then the principle of complementarity that's rooted in the in in our biology, right? It's rooted in the way we are physically put together. Some things are not up to us; it's not our call. It's rooted in God's design. So the church will say and stands by its core value when it comes to marriage that marriage is between a man and a woman and says that boldly, even though today it could be countercultural.
0: The case was far from over. After the district court ruled for the city, Beckett appealed to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Oral arguments took place in November 2018.
7: So we took this up to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, and there's some good law in the Third Circuit. We were hopeful we uh, we might see something good out of it, and uh, we went in to do the oral argument and became apparent very, very quickly which way the panel was going to go on that. Sometimes you you know right after you walk in uh, what the answer is going to be, and it was it was pretty obvious they were not going to rule for us.
1: The Third Circuit released their decision the next spring, in April 2019, a loss. But
0: this was not a bland restatement of the district court decision below. Not at all. As if this case wasn't important enough in its own right, the Third Circuit's decision actually magnified its importance by expanding the question to the very definition of our Constitution's free exercise clause.
7: So here we are in this case that is dealing with possibly ending A centuries-old religious ministry possibly causing foster families to lose the support they need and social workers to lose their jobs and you have this big public conflict over religious liberty so all that was already going on in this case and then it suddenly became bigger because you have this question of, what does the free exercise clause mean? And you go back to this case of Employment Division versus Smith from 1990 that really restricted free exercise protection.
0: We talked at length about that case, Employment Division v. Smith, in our Season 2 episode on Rifra. But as a quick refresher, what Smith did was to get rid of a strict judicial test formerly applied to free exercise cases. The decision was widely criticized at the time, and Congress passed laws, like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RFRA, in an attempt to restore the strict judicial test. But
1: the Supreme Court never overruled Smith. Now the court sometimes does apply that same strict judicial test, but only in cases where a legislative act like RFRA applies. That leaves plenty of cases where RFRA does not apply, so Smith still looms large. What the Third Circuit
7: said was basically that if we won, if courts agreed with how we thought the free exercise clause ought to work, then Employment Division versus Smith was a dead letter. It was no longer a good law. And the court saying that really put a spotlight on that question in the case. What does the free exercise clause mean?
0: How is the Supreme Court going to interpret it? So the Third Circuit made a hot case even hotter. After their decision, Beckett appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court.
7: We knew that this was going to be a tough case to bring in Philadelphia, and we were going to fight hard and do our best, um, but we knew that it was an uphill battle. We also knew the Supreme Court was going to take this issue up at some point. We didn't know if it would be this case. Often they kind of wait for several cases to happen. They call it percolation. They wait for several cases to happen and see where the law is going, where the lower courts are going, and then they step in.
0: But characteristic to the fast-moving nature of this case, the Supreme Court did agree to hear it.
7: It was February 24th. Of 2020, we got the news that the court was going to take the case, and we were so excited. You know, obviously you don't know if you're going to win, but you know you've got another shot, you know? Most of the time, you don't get another shot. We knew we had one more chance. We were so excited. Everybody Catholic Social Services was excited. Sharon Hill and Tony were excited.
6: If the Supreme Court even accepts it, then there's a chance. And that's what kept me strong. If they accept the case, then there's a possibility we're going to win.
0: And even though Cecilia Paul wasn't there to experience it, her legacy was. There was actually
7: a brief filed with the Supreme Court on behalf of several of her former foster kids and adopted kids talking about the difference that she made in their lives. And they felt it was important to keep on Um, telling her story and explaining her life's work throughout this. And it was really beautiful to see.
1: Everyone was excited about the Supreme Court case. But this was all happening in February 2020.
7: And then three weeks later, the world shut down. And suddenly, all these conversations are happening over Zoom. And we're trading, you know, the drafts together on our server. And we can't meet in the office to, you know, sit down and talk about how we're going to do all this. Uh, And it's harder to go and and visit the clients and and meet with them. And then the Supreme Court stopped hearing oral arguments in person, which is something that they hadn't done for like 100 years um, since the last pandemic.
0: The Supreme Court ultimately started hearing oral arguments again, this time over the phone. And the Fulton arguments were scheduled for November 2020. The telephonic arguments presented their own challenges, but there were also some upsides.
7: The court was very specific about what they wanted. They wanted us to have a landline. And who has a landline? And so we actually had to figure out how to get a landline run to our office during quarantine so that we would actually have the equipment the court wanted to be able to do it. You know, you always want to be able to go in the courtroom and, and be there, and I've I've certainly been there for a number of arguments, um, but there were some really good things that came out of it. You know, it gave us more time to practice with doing it by phone, um, and I was actually able to have uh, Tony and her boys there, and so, uh, you know, she was able to to sit and listen in, and her boys were able to go and eat cookies in the back of the office while we were doing that. Um I was able to have my husband and my daughter there. Um, That's something I probably wouldn't have been able to do if we'd had it in the courtroom. But, you know, it was my mom wanted to be a lawyer, and she wasn't able to go to law school. It was just financially too tough. And so she was really excited when I became a lawyer. um, And it was really special to have my daughter there and be able to say, hey, you were here on the day when your mom got to argue at the Supreme Court and to watch that.
1: Back in Philadelphia, the folks from Catholic Social Services were also listening in.
2: We all gathered in the conference room on the fourth floor here uh, with uh, our staff and uh, listened fervently to the questions and uh, back and forth with the lorry and the Supreme Court members. Uh, I mean, there was a sense at, at the end of it of where the court stood.
7: Coming out of the argument, we were really happy. We were really optimistic. Felt like it had gone really well. Clients were really happy. And you read the news or watched Twitter. um, You know, you saw most people, whether they agreed with us or disagreed with us, saying that it was
0: going to be a win. And uh, so we we were very happy. The case was now universally acknowledged to be important. People were holding their breath to see what the court would do. Would it go all the way and overrule Smith? In June
1: 2021, three years after the case had begun with Philadelphia effectively shuttering Catholic Social Services foster care, the court issued its decision. The
7: weird pandemic way that the Supreme Court announces opinions is they just post them on their website. And it's at a certain time, you know, when they're going to post opinions. And so everybody gathers around their computers. And we were here in the office, you know, things were, were reopening by then. And so we were back in the office and we were sitting at our computers watching and they like release them in 10 minute increments.
3: Yeah, I remember that that day logging on and seeing that it, you know, it it had been posted. Running down to Jim's office, like, Jim, I think we have a decision. Running back, trying to scrutinize, you know, this legal ease, and, and then running back down to Jim's office, Jim, I think we won. And uh, you know, and then you know, we started hearing, you know, Lori called, and the bishop came down, Bishop McIntyre came down. I think it's probably the first and only time I've high-fived a bishop.
5: i read through it like very quickly and I was like so excited, like knowing what I read but not really knowing what I, I wanted to make sure I understood what I read. And I called Sharon and I was like, I think we just won.
6: I said, unanimous, unanimous, what's they talking about? What is a unanimous decision? And she said, everybody turned out all of the justice and I said, oh, say it to me like I understand. I didn't understand no unanimous decision. I was driving, and I actually pulled over, you know, in the lane for emergencies because I was had become very emotional that we won, that the children could come back, that the agency could go back to their business at hand. It was an overwhelming feeling of happiness. I felt that it was a victory, not just because we won, but because they listened.
7: I remember reading through cuz you know you get it and it's just this huge like what 80 pages of paper, you know, PDF that you get and you're trying to scroll down and figure out who won. And I remember reading through the list and thinking this is this is the wrong lineup. What happened? And then I realized it was unanimous. And it was such a stunning moment after all of this, after 3 years of fighting and after so many losses to realize not only had we won, But we won the whole thing, and we got every justice on the court. And it was was such a big moment.
0: After the initial celebration, the team at Beckett scrutinized the decision. What did this mean for Smith?
7: So it's a unanimous decision, but justices had different ways of approaching it. The majority said, well, Philadelphia— has this policy that it will make exceptions from its other policies. And, you know, it can make exceptions for a lot of reasons, but it refused to make an exception for Catholic social services. That violates a free exercise clause. You don't have to reach this question of, you know, what happens with Employment Division versus Smith, because even under that standard, Philadelphia flunked it. And that is what the majority said. And that was something we'd argued all along. Our argument all along had been, yeah, you should get rid of Smith because it's a terrible decision and it makes a mess of things. But even if you don't, we still win because there's several ways that Philadelphia broke the law. And so that was what the majority said.
1: But some of the justices seemed keen to overrule Smith.
7: Three justices, Justices Barrett, Kavanaugh, and uh, Breyer said, well, they won. And we should probably think, rethink this employment division versus Smith standard, but we haven't figured out what it needs to look like yet. So we're not going to revisit that today. And then you had Justices Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch, who said, yes, they won, and you need to get rid of Smith. And uh, you know, Justice Alito wrote this really powerful 77-page concurrence about how the Free Exercise Clause ought to work. Looking at the history, looking at the development of the law, it's, it's really powerful. It's really, you know, it's a great way to learn more about the Free Exercise Clause. I, I recommend reading it.
0: The fact that the decision was unanimous on such a hot topic and that the court didn't get rid of Smith completely had some people saying, oh, well, this is a kind of a narrow decision. But from the perspective of people at Catholic Social Services, nothing could have felt further from the truth.
3: A lot of pundits were talking Uh, after the decision, you know, about how limited the decision was. From our perspective, it it wasn't at all. It was a very strong uh, decision in our favor. And the implications for us, at least, I mean, maybe it didn't have the grand implications nationally that it could have had, although I think there were national implications.
7: It's the first time that you've had a majority of the court saying, hey, we think we need to rethink Employment Division versus Smith. And so I think that's a very strong signal to other parties that hey, when you're bringing your case, you need to ask that question because the court is um, is getting ready to do that. And so I think what we'll see going forward is courts relying less and less on Smith because they realize it doesn't govern all cases. Um, and I think sometime soon the court will revisit and and overturn
0: Smith. In the short term, we've already seen evidence that Fulton will have positive effects on faith-based foster care agencies. Remember Beckett's Michigan case where the ACLU had sued to stop the state from working with a Catholic agency? In Michigan,
7: that uh, dispute had been going on for quite a while. The state of Michigan had uh, changed its policy and said it was no longer going to continue to work with agencies who had similar religious beliefs about marriage. And they just entered into a settlement. It's a binding court order with St. Vincent Catholic Charities, acknowledging that they were bound by Fulton and they had to continue working with this agency. And so I think that that shows we're going to see a lot of similar outcomes around the country where lawsuits settle because they realize the Supreme Court has spoken unanimously or where maybe lawsuits don't get brought a, a question comes up, and the lawyers are looking at the law and saying, Oh, you do need to work with religious agencies. You can't go around shutting them down.
0: Keeping faith based agencies in the picture is a good thing for the foster care system. In places that have shut them down, foster care numbers have suffered. Illinois, for example, shut down faith based foster agencies in 2011. Over the next seven years, the state lost more than 5,000 foster families. Massachusetts similarly lost 2,000 families in the years after shutting down religious agencies. So if states continue to work with faith-based agencies, there's hope that numbers like these can improve.
1: The Fulton decision has been cited in many other cases in the short years since. It was a pretty astounding victory. But what of the cost to Philadelphia foster care
0: in the meanwhile? When the city of Philadelphia shut down intake for Catholic social services, they had something like 70 to 80 families and were serving 120 kids. By the time the case finished at the Supreme Court, they were down to eight families, only 15 kids. While the win was definitely good news for Catholic social services, it was also bittersweet to look back on the terrible toll these three years had taken staff gone, families gone. Children who couldn't be placed, homes sitting empty. It was frustrating to think that this had to go all the way to the Supreme Court.
2: Why did this have to go on for three years and wind up in the Supreme Court? Why couldn't this get worked out in Philadelphia? And it could have been.
1: The focus now would have to be rebuilding Catholic Social Services foster care programs.
2: So I took about another two months or so uh, to get us a full contract, which meant the doors were open for referrals, and uh, uh, at that point. Uh, We had a meeting with the Commissioner Kimberly Ali for the city and her senior team. And they were nothing but gracious. They were glad to see that we were back. We were glad that we were back. We expressed our commitment uh, to this mission and the uh, service of kids. And uh, our administrator advised them of where we had foster bed openings. And then referrals started. And uh, we started receiving referrals from them. We started getting kid care referrals. But uh, it was an amazing, Back to normal, back to usual, without a lot of bombast or anything like that, you know. It was good, you know. Uh, I mean, it was was interesting to me, too, because when I was testifying to Third Circuit for Catholic Social Services, Kimberly Ali, then Deputy Commissioner, was my counterpart for the city, okay. And she and I had known each other for years, so, uh, you know, there was never a... I didn't get an animosity or anything like that. I think we were all doing what was necessary to do in terms of who we are, the jobs that we had. And uh, and again, fortunately, it was, uh, we're back, you know, and uh, we're getting referrals.
0: This was a total blockbuster case. Nine zero, the court said Philadelphia couldn't just stop working with Catholic social services because they disagreed on marriage. The effects will no doubt ripple out for many, many years to come. What's equally amazing is that this
1: case could just as easily never have happened. Across the country, other faith-based agencies gave up because they didn't believe this was a fight they could win. But this case and these people have proven that religious liberty is in fact a winning position. It can win and it should win. Our society is enriched by people of faith who have so much to give.
5: There are things in this life that are worth fighting for, and this was one thing that was worth fighting for.
6: If you believe in something wholeheartedly and you keep the faith, you don't change what you believe in to satisfy the world or whoever. I believe that's a good thing.
0: Thank you to everyone who granted us interviews for this episode Jim Amato, Jim Black, Archbishop Nelson Perez, Tony Simsbush, Sharon L. Fulton, and Beckett's Lori Wyndham. Music in this episode, courtesy of APM Music. Our theme music was composed by Eric McNerney. Beckett is a nonprofit public interest law firm dedicated to defending religious freedom for all. Our clients have included Amish, Buddhists, Christians, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, and Zoroastrians. For more information on Rifra, our work, and Stream of Conscience, visit our website at beckettlaw.org or follow us on social media.